You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 69. Hello again, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, here to guide you on a journey into realms of the fantastic. Every week I share my fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 20 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, don't start with this episode. Go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Vampire medical examiner Morgan Drowling has gotten caught up in the misadventures of a few of her noble peers. Misty Holloway, Sefi Hinlassos, Julie Mathias, and Ezekiel Kapler all traveled to the mysterious Telvari Rift Zone, where they were transformed by the life-aspected mana that saturates the region. Their bodies mutated in surprising ways, and they gained impressive psionic powers. Zeke can teleport himself and others— Sethi can see the future, Julie can control fire, and Misty can move and control objects with her mind. Zeke believes that they have made a huge breakthrough, since they've shown that mundane humans can survive exposure to the rift and come back as something more. Unfortunately, these young lordlings have gotten more than they bargained for. Something about the transformation process has left Zeke dangerously unstable, and he has become shockingly paranoid about others trying to steal his birthright. Meanwhile, Misty, Sefi, and Julia have all become hosts to a group of magical symbionts, intelligent beings that lived in the rift and fed on its energies. Zeke knows nothing about these symbionts, for they have hidden their presence from him, but Misty, Sefi, and Julia are slowly dying. The symbionts need to return to the rift soon, or they will starve and kill their hosts in the process. The Lightbringer Janus Starson met with Misty and Julia and agreed to transport the women back to the Rift. In a fit of paranoid jealousy, though, Zeke kidnapped Julia from the meeting and set off a skimmer bomb to try to kill Janus and the police detectives who were helping him. Morgan and Misty came to the rescue, but by the time they had incapacitated Zeke and found Julia, the woman's life force was already dangerously depleted. Knowing that Julia would never survive the trip across town to Lightbringer headquarters, Morgan decided to seek help directly from Majestrix Kaya. Kaya's citadel sits on the biggest mana source in a thousand kilometers, so if she's willing to grant access to this nexus, then Morgan and Misty will be able to feed the symbiont what it needs, and keep both it and Julia alive until the Lightbringers can come get her. Only one problem. The nexus is Kaya's heart the center of her power, and she hasn't let anyone near it in centuries. To persuade her to open a path for them, Morgan is going to need to cash in a very, very old favor. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 20 Continued 
The Hall of Remembrance was not part of the usual tourist's itinerary at the Citadel. It wasn't listed in any of the official brochures, and guided tours steered well clear of it in favor of newer and more physically attractive locales. A few of the more eclectic travel guides made mention of it, usually in no more than a sentence or two. But among the great old houses of Metamore's nobility it was remembered and cherished. House Drowling was not one of the great old houses, but Morgan had made it a point to befriend members of those houses when the opportunity arose. Some day she would inherit control of House Drowling from her father, and on that day she would need all the allies she could get. Over the years those allies had told her things, like the location of the hall she headed for now. Morgan led Misty down a narrow, dimly lit passage, deep in the heart of the citadel. The stone walls and floors echoed eerily with the sound of their footsteps. Misty had Lady Julia over her shoulder in a fireman's carry, and she didn't seem to be straining from the effort. Morgan would have offered to trade off carrying the woman, but Julia was giving off so much heat now that Morgan was afraid her vampiric flesh might catch fire if she got too close. Misty glanced all around her as she moved in the narrow space, as if afraid that the walls might reach out to knock themselves against her or her charge. At last they came to a pair of heavy oaken doors, with the words Hall of Remembrance engraved on a plaque above the doorframe. Morgan turned the old brass handles and pushed her way inside. The hall looked like something out of a medieval castle, which in fact it was. Gray stones, smooth but only crudely polished, formed the walls and floor, arching up to a round vaulted ceiling about seven meters high. Thick, faded Calaware rugs covered much of the floor, and ornate tapestries hung on the walls between wrought-iron lamp sconces probably originally meant for gas or candles, but now sporting compact fluorescent bulbs of a soft yellowish hue. Below each of the sconces was a statue, life-sized and shaped from the same gray stone as the walls. Many of them were theriomorphs. A rat, a fox, a jackal, a horse, an otter, and many more. Others were human men and women. A few were children, looking no more than twelve years old. Most were dressed as warriors, but a few wore the robes of priests, the stylish garb of nobility, or even the simple homespun of commoners. Each stood on a meter-high pedestal, so that no visitor could look down on even the shortest of them. The pedestals were inscribed with names and lists of accomplishments. Wherever they stood, all of the statues were posed with their faces toward the center of the room, where a slender gray monolith rose three meters out of the rock beneath. Each statue made a gesture of respect toward that spire, a salute, a palm outstretched in benediction, a hand over the heart. On the rectangular sides of the spire thousands of names had been carved, in letters no more than a centimeter high. A flame burned in a low, golden bowl before the monolith, filling the air with the smell of incense. Gods, what is this place? Misty asked. Her voice had fallen to little more than a whisper. This is where Metamore remembers her heroes, Morgan said, matching her tone. The old ones from the days before the Empire. 
the great ones who made the history books. Here she gestured to the statues that lined the walls, and the ordinary ones who only she remembers. She pointed at the spire. Misty nodded slowly. Her eyes fell on the statue of the rat theory morph near the front of the room, a short and stocky man in a simple homespun tunic. A hand-shaped scar covered the right side of his face, shown as a shallow depression in the stone. He carried a staff in one hand and extended the other toward the monolith. The inscription read, Charles Matthias, the Rat of Might, Long Scout, Master of the Sindeki's Order, fought the curse of Marzak and saved Metamor from the blight of the outer darkness. The original Matthias, Misty said thoughtfully. She looked over the inscription for a moment. I recognize Marzak from history class. Do you know what the rest of it means? It's a long story, Morgan said. Just set her down here. Misty laid Julia out on the floor at the base of the Matthias statue, making sure not to let her touch the expensive-looking rugs. Morgan could see the ripple of heat distortion around her body in the light of the nearby lamps. Julia twitched and trembled, but made no sign of waking. Morgan walked over to the spire and placed her hand against its smooth, polished surface. This, she knew, was part of the old Metamore Keep, the backbone of Kaya's physical body. In touching the stone, Morgan was literally making contact with the Majestrix herself. Morgan spoke, not loudly, but clearly, and with steady conviction. I know you can hear me. I know what this place means to you. Look here. See this woman on the floor? She's one of his. And she's dying. She needs life, Mana. A lot of it. More than we can give her. But for you, it would be just a trickle. She paused. Misty looked up at the ceiling, saying nothing. The silence stretched. I know I don't have the right to ask you for anything, Morgan said, her voice subdued now. My family are latecomers here. We didn't fight the Dark Lord. We didn't go through the battled years when your people were outcasts. We were opportunists who only showed up after you got the curse under control. My father holds up our pure human lineage like it's something to be proud of. But I know better. We've done nothing for you. She nodded at the statue of Charles I. But he did a great deal for you. And if you were here, I think he'd want you to save her. Silence. Misty looked at her searchingly. Julia twitched and lay still. Morgan bowed her head and closed her eyes, pressing her forehead into the stone. Please, she whispered. There was a low, grinding noise. The floor began to shake and kept shaking as the grinding sound grew into a roar of stone on stone. Morgan looked up and saw the far wall of the Hall of Remembrance sinking into the floor, exposing a long, sloping passage beyond. She ran over to the tunnel's entrance and looked down at a set of stairs that disappeared into darkness. 
Misty came up beside her, gazing in wonder at the secret passage. Holy shit! I can't believe that worked. Morgan grinned. She'd been about 75% sure that Kaya would answer, but she was still relieved to see that she'd judged the Majestrix rightly. There was no telling sometimes with immortals. They didn't think like humans, no matter how human they might look. Get Julia. I'll light the way. She pulled out her torch and checked the light beam. There was still plenty of strength left in the batteries. No sooner had they begun their descent, however, than Morgan heard the sound of other footsteps from the darkness below. She signaled to halt and turned her ear toward the sound, listening intently. Metal. Metal footsteps on stone. That was the sound of a man in plate armor, a sound Morgan had only heard in historical reenactments of ancient battles. She came down a few steps in front of Misty and braced herself, waiting. The figure that came into view was about 180 centimeters tall, not much taller than Kate, but a giant of a man from medieval times. He was dressed head to toe in glistening black armor, his form barely distinguishable from the darkness around him. He wore a face mask that completely hid his features. A long, heavy sword hung in a scabbard on his back, but he carried no other equipment that Morgan could see. His armor bore some sort of rune or glyph on the breastplate, one that Morgan had never seen before. He stopped three steps below where Morgan stood. When he looked up at her, she saw no eyes behind that mask, only two bright pinpoints of light. He bowed briefly. Lady Morgan Drowling. His voice sounded weirdly mechanical and seemed not to be muted in the slightest by passing through his armor. Lady Mysteria Holloway, I have been instructed to escort you and your comrade to the Nexus. Thank you. Morgan said, bowing in return. But you have me at a disadvantage. What may I call you, Sir Knight? Omega, the armored man said. Follow me, please. He turned and descended back into the darkness. Morgan glanced back at Misty, who shrugged. They followed. Morgan's obsessive-compulsive instincts made her count the steps as they descended. At 470, they reached a landing and turned left. Thereafter, the steps continued in a regular pattern. One hundred steps down, turn, repeat, a vast rectangular spiral into the depths of the citadel. The Majestrix couldn't have installed a lift or something, Misty muttered, as they passed step number 812. A light sheen of sweat had broken out on her reddish skin filling the close air of the passage with her scent. Morgan felt a surge of arousal. Whether it was from the changes at the rift or her service to Suspira, Misty smelled incredible. She imagined licking the sweat off the upper curves of those breasts before continuing her explorations further down. If she tastes as good as she smells... Damn it. Focus, Morgan. There would be time to play with Misty later. Right now, they had to save Julia's life. Thinking about Julia led Morgan to cast a worried glance over her shoulder. How is she? Misty looked grim. If I were still human, I'm pretty sure she'd have melted my skin by now. 
and the shaking's getting worse. Morgan quickened her steps, soon catching up with Omega in his steady, unhurried descent. We need to go faster, Omega. The armored man did not even turn to look at her. It is a very long fall if you should lose your footing, Lady Drowling. Morgan choked back a hysterical giggle. A long fall? Omega, you don't know what a long fall is. We need to risk it, she said instead. Lady Julia is running out of time. As you wish. And then he was out ahead of her again, crashing down the steps at more than twice his previous speed, as abruptly as a ground car shifting into passing gear. Morgan waved to Misty to follow, then raced after him. Even Morgan lost count for the rest of the descent, though she knew by the number of turns that they were over twelve hundred. Then the steps left the narrow passage and became a tight, curving staircase, descending into vast, empty darkness. Omega's footsteps echoed back from walls that were far, far away. Morgan could smell water, cold and clean, and the air tingled with an energy that both called to her and repulsed her. Life, Mana. There was nothing else like it. The steps touched down on an irregular outcropping of natural stone. Morgan cast about with her torch and saw that they were on an island, perhaps three meters across. Water stretched out into the gloom in all directions. Even with Morgan's superior night vision, there was no telling how large the lake was. Life mana radiated off the water like heat from a stove, and Morgan could see the ripples of an active current on the surface. Running water, she sighed. Running life-saturated water. Why don't we just put in a few mirrors and garlic bulbs and set the whole thing on fire for good measure? Omega turned to look at her, his bright, pinpoint eyes expressionless. Right, sorry, Morgan said. I presume there's a boat or something to take us across? Or something, Omega agreed. He knelt at the water's edge, with a soft clanking of metal on metal, and placed his palm over his heart. The rune on his breastplate flared with blue-white light. Then he touched his hand to the rock, bowing his head as if in prayer. Another low, heavy rumble shook the stone beneath them. Then the waters in front of Omega rippled and parted, as another patch of ground rose from the depths. As Morgan watched, it extended itself, lengthening out into darkness, becoming a causeway over the lake. Come, Omega said. They went more slowly on the causeway than they had on the stairs, partly because the rock was still slick with moisture, but mostly because of the quiet, forbidding majesty of the place. This was as close to holy ground as Morgan was ever likely to experience— the sense of a great, unseen presence, ancient beyond reckoning, and as close as her own shriveled heart. She wanted to fall to her knees as Omega had, and stay there, letting the terrible beauty of the place soak into her. Only the thought of Julia's condition kept her moving forward. They came to a rocky shore and ascended a slope of wet, uneven stones into the mouth of a tunnel three meters wide. The tunnel turned a few meters ahead, 
and from somewhere beyond that turn there came a light, the first light since the Hall of Remembrance that hadn't come from Omega's eyes or her own torch. It lit the gray stones with a flood of intense white, accented with a hint of blue that most humans wouldn't have noticed. For a moment, Morgan stopped in shock. It looked like sunlight. Gods, I forgot how bright the sun was. Lady Drowling? Omega had stopped in the pool of light and looked back at her. Now that she could see him better, she realized with a start that he was not wearing a suit of armor. He was the suit of armor. In the joints of his greaves and bracers, she could now see gears and cables, and the light of his eyes came from two gemstones that glowed like tiny stars. His heels were connected to a set of powerful-looking pistons on his lower legs, which roughly mimicked the shape of a human's calves and tendons. Even the scabbard, she now saw, was an extension of his own black metal body. "'You're not Tomaton,' Morgan said, wonderingly. Misty pulled up short next to Morgan. She seemed to take stock of the situation quickly. "'Holy shit! Is that a robot?' "'An automaton,' Morgan said again. "'A, a clockwork robot, enhanced by magic and bound to a human soul. "'But I thought they were all gone.' "'I am the last,' Omega said. "'Once I guarded the Amber Order, my creators. "'Now I guard this place.' "'This is amazing,' Morgan said. "'She stepped forward to get a closer look.' marveling at the fine craftsmanship of the construct. No one's seen a working automaton in more than five centuries. Misty pushed past her, stepping between Morgan and Omega and into the light. Whatever, she said. I've maxed out my holy shit meter for the day. Let's go save Julie. She disappeared into the passage beyond. Morgan looked nervously at the light, then back at Omega. Is it safe for me to be in there? For a time. Omega extended a hand. The Majestrix did not send me to destroy you. Your petition stirred her heart. He cocked his head slightly. And she bade me tell you this, that you have as much right to her help as any of her children. Compared to Kaya, Lady Drowling... You are all newcomers. Morgan smiled despite herself. No, immortals really didn't think like humans. All right, let's go. She took his hand and stepped with him into the light. And that's the end of chapter 20. What will Morgan find when she steps into the light? And what about Kate and David, who are on their way to save Sethi? Will they reach our young Cirrus before Fisher has his way with her? Find out next week. Richard Bach said, A professional writer is an amateur who didn't quit. So... Let's see how I did this week. Here's your weekly writing report. 
I wrote 6,532 words this week, over the course of 10.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 622 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 95 days without breaking my chain. This week was all about the lost and the least. I worked on the novel every day except Friday, when I took a break to work on this script. I'm now up to the end of chapter 32, and the manuscript is nearly 110,000 words. I'm starting to make plans for the next project after The Lost and the Least is finished. Two ideas are currently competing for my attention. The first is to start work on a new short story collection. This one is tentatively called Dangerous Minds, and it's all about the members of the Psy Collective and other folks with psionic talents. The first story in the collection, called The Way is in the Heart, is already in progress, though it's been sitting unfinished for a while now. Other stories I want to tell include how Sasha came to join the Psy Collective, how Brian Summers and his team survived their first mission for PsyOps, and a ghost story involving Abby Preston and Danny Sharabi. The other book I want to work on, of course, is the next novel, which takes place after The Lost and the Least. This will be the third book in the story arc called The Last Prophecy, and thanks to my friend Dan Sawyer, this book now has a name. It's called None Shall Dwell Within, and in this book, the struggle between Malcolm and the White Widow explodes into all-out war. A lot of dominoes I've been setting up over three novels and two story collections are about to fall, and once they do, the world of Metamor will never be the same. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, write a review on iTunes, or make a monthly pledge on Patreon at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.